So thank you for joining the Career of Now Socially Distanced Close-Ups Israel Edition. Please share with me your brief story of how you got to where you are today. I'm really delighted to be here and, and delighted to share my story because I think it's a, it's a story that can inspire lots of young people because my story is, is a student. Um, I studied uh, law and received a scholarship to do a master's in international environmental law at American University um, in Washington, D.C. in 93-94. And my story is the story of, of how a research project at university can just change your life. Um, so think closely when um, <laughs> choosing your research topics because they could just take you away as they, as they did for me for the last 25 years. I was in Washington at the time when the Oslo Accords, Israeli-Palestinian were being negotiated and the peace treaty between Israel and Jordan were, were being negotiated. And when thinking about a research topic, I simply asked the question, well, is peace gonna be good for the environment? Um, peace was at that moment in time, a given. We were all in euphoria. We thought that peace had broken out. It's the end of violence, it's the end of conflict. And the concern that, that I expressed was, well, was peace gonna be uh, peace just between people, which of course is also is very important, but could it also mean peace between people and nature? And my research uh, revealed that the environment wasn't in fact uh, on the peace agenda. Um, it was receiving lip service only, and there was massive development plans being proposed. As an example, 50,000 new hotel rooms were being planned to be built around the Dead Sea without any sense of carrying capacity. With each side, planning to build on without considering what the other side is building and, and how uh, the Dead Sea could handle such large numbers of tourists and development. Um, so uh, one of the conclusions of my uh, thesis was that, well, perhaps if environmentalists got together, Israeli, Palestinian, Jordanian, and Egyptian, perhaps we could create an organization and put and try to put environmental issues on the peace agenda. Even uh, before leaving uh, Washington, I was, uh, I was just there for a year uh, to go back to Tel Aviv, to go back to Israel, I started reaching out to about a dozen individuals in the Washington area. Would they, the first meeting ever of Israeli, Palestinian, Jordanian, and Egyptian environmentalists. And they all threw me out the door politely um, and said, <laughs> come back when you're a little bit older. Nice idea, but you know, get more experience. Um, <laughs> Well, I'm a persistent person, and when coming back to Israel, I wrote to them all, and one of them picked up the phone, uh, having uh, received a letter from me, and said, you know what? If you can organize it, I'll fund it, and I'll be there. It was just a, a request for $20,000, and indeed, by the end of 1994, in December 1994, so very quickly, I organized that first meeting, and on the second day of that meeting, Echo Peace was born, the very first regional environmental organization ever to be created that includes Arabs and Israelis. In fact, until today, the only regional organization, we are the only organization in any field that is wow. Israeli, Palestinian, and Jordanian together. We're not a cooperative uh, endeavor. We're not three separate organizations. We're one organization with a single board, a single budget, and a single strategy. And what's unique about us is that, you know, I'm the Israeli director, but I have a counterpart Palestinian director in Ramallah and Jordanian director in Amman. And all of our staff have their counterpart in the other offices because we all work together for the same cause uh, for our shared environment. That's incredible. 
I imagine that the way you look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict today is much different than when you first started. If any, has your perception changed about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and just the Middle East? Clearly, the foundation of the, the raison d'etre as to why Ecopeace was created to put environment onto the peace agenda and fear from overdevelopment, really the rug was pulled under our feet because you know, peace didn't eventuate. And we saw continued violence. There was a failure until today of the peace process. And therefore, overdevelopment wasn't taking place. I mean, no one was wanting to really invest in this region. Um, and therefore, Ecopeace had to reinvent itself. It, it took a few years to understand that we really need to rethink as to whether we're relevant and what would make us relevant if we were to change. And we came to understanding that after several years, at, at this time, five years of working together, we're an example of how we can make peace, of how Israelis, Palestinians, and Jordanians can work together when there's a common cause and a common understanding that we're all in the same boat. If we don't work together on these issues, we will all suffer, and irrespective of the other socioeconomic or political conditions that might differ between us. And, and therefore, we really came to understand that, that we were an example, that we were a model for peace, and, and that we really changed the nature of the organization from a more typical environmental organization, really just looking at the environmental issues, to becoming more true to our original name, because you know, we chose the word echo peace, thinking that peace was a given, but then very quickly we saw peace wasn't a given at all. <laughs> and although the term didn't exist at the time, uh, what we came to do was to advance environmental peace building. Now today, that's a well-known concept, and we were one of the first trailblazers of implementing that concept anywhere in the world. And indeed today, groups from all over the world come and, and ask us questions, are, are trying to learn from our 25 years of experience. Incredible. So like you said, you bring together Israelis, Palestinians, Jordanians. In what ways have you seen their perspectives shift in terms of how they view each other or maybe things that surprise them about the way they live or their access to water? Absolutely. That's a key feature of our work is, is to first, you know, with a great sense of, of inquiry, uh, without going into a blame game, uh, to understand what is the water reality of each side? What is my water reality? Because people you know, turn on the tap and they see water and they don't really understand where that water has come from and, and what's happened to get that water into your home. Um, so first and foremost, understand your own water reality, then to understand your neighbor's water reality. And in many cases, the vast differences between two. And most importantly, from an Ecopeace perspective, to understand the interdependency between the two, because water flows. Almost all of our natural water resources are shared. They cross uh, the borders. In fact, the political borders make no ecological sense whatsoever. They actually just get in the way to properly manage those water resources. So by understanding the differences, but also understanding the shared responsibility, and then the focus that Ecopeace tries to promote is to go away from a simple blame game, because a blame game turns people off. No one right. likes to be blamed. When someone is blamed, then they're no longer going to listen. So what's the point? Because you're trying to, uh, as you said, open, open people's minds to different perspectives. So the, the approach of Ecopeace is to bring the facts forward and a call to take responsibility, each side to take responsibility, even though they might not have the same responsibility. They, ha they always have some responsibility to improve their own water reality. In our work, 
when we uh, meet with communities or even with experts and officials, generally the attitude is the other side is responsible for our misery. When we started our work uh, on the River Jordan and the demise of this incredible river, holy to half of humanity, we would ask um, you know, Israeli experts, who's responsible for the demise of the River Jordan? And they'd mostly say, well, Syria and Jordan have taken all the water. We asked Palestinian and Jordanian experts, they would counter, no, Israel has taken it all. The, the fresh water no longer flows out of the Sea of Galilee, as an example. And in a typical Equipes fashion, we took researchers from all three countries and we commissioned a joint fact-finding. And that's really important because as soon as we're fact-finding together, then there's a higher level of openness to understand the narrative of the other side. And no less important, as soon as we bring a collection of researchers together, then the results of that research can then be espoused with a lot of legitimacy from Israelis to Israelis, from Palestinians to Palestinians, and from Jordanians to Jordanians. And what we came to see, that the research concluded that about half the water that used to flow down the River Jordan was indeed taken by Israel. But the other half was taken by Syria and Jordan. And although the Palestinians were left with almost nothing from the river, they, like the Israelis and the Jordanians, were contributing sewerage to the river. <clears throat> Again, although we don't share the same responsibility, we all have some responsibility. And call is to take forth that responsibility to do what you can on your side. And then together to try and, and reverse the demise of this river into a clean river again that would promote shared prosperity to all three peoples. I imagine that the programming has looked a little different these days. So what new challenges or opportunities does the pandemic present for EcoPeace and just the water industry at large? For any um, uh, organization that has a core agenda item bringing people together, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic presents enormous challenges because clearly we're in lockdown, the borders are closed, we can't meet. And of course, we've taken this as a great opportunity to invest in the virtual world. We're really pleased how energetic and out-of-the-box thinking our staff and the many communities that we work with, uh, that we work with uh, have taken the challenge of the pandemic to bring our work into a completely new era. Um, we're actually um, in the midst of creating a virtual world, um, you know, using gaming technology to develop a virtual Jordan Valley where wow. Israelis, Palestinians and Jordanians will actually be able to meet together in this virtual Jordan Valley and travel more freely than they can in reality because the Jordan Valley, of course, has mines and borders. And, right. and, and we're going to take it a step further. We're going to have them come together in this virtual uh, Jordan Valley looking at the current situation. But because it's virtual, we can take a step back and look at what was the reality before the conflict and then we can also extrapolate as to what it could look like and visualize that for people if we were to work together and rehabilitate the river and the valley. Although serious challenges, and of course, we're very worried about the health issues for our families and broader populations, but we actually do see it as an opportunity and to further highlight the importance of our work. In fact, we think that one of the lessons from the pandemic is that hopefully the public will take scientific issues a lot more seriously. I mean, it really has, you know, has been those leaders around the world that made a joke 
out of science that despite the best scientific evidence were telling their populations that ah this is not so serious there's nothing to worry about well you know when you don't take science seriously and much of the environmental challenges that we face and climate change that we face are based on sound scientific evidence and we see leaders around the world and we see public choosing to bring their politics into this issue rather than uh, advance policy based on scientific facts. So we hope that um, the COVID pandemic will also be a wake-up call uh, to the general public and to those populist leaders uh, that hopefully will pay the price in elections for failing to really care for their populations by ignoring science. It's amazing to think that you could have a virtual Jordan River and that everyone could come together. That's incredible. Can you name a teaching moment for you, whether that was a mistake or failure that made you reassess? So I've had many teaching moments. I think one of the things, particularly in my younger days, and because I've been the Israeli director here for 25 years, the importance of looking to things in the long term, the importance of relationship building, you know, when you're inexperienced, you know, perhaps you think that you can be less diplomatic, you can not care, you can just say you know, whatever is on your mind and who cares? Well, it does matter. When you're, when you're trying to change the world, when you're trying to make a difference, you're in it for the long term. Change doesn't happen overnight. It takes decades. And therefore, investing in relationships and nurturing relationships that are really difficult with people that you don't agree with is critical. You can't give up on people. You can't think that, well, they don't know and their views aren't important and I'm just going to continue in whatever I think is right. Of course, you should do that, but not at the expense of continuing to listen to others that disagree with you. The great challenge is, in fact, not to speak to those that agree with you already. The great challenge, if you want to change the reality on the ground, to work with those that don't agree with you, to work with those that have no opinion and are just sitting on the fence. They're your target audience. I mean, a great lesson for me was not to stay in the comfort zone of speaking mostly to people that agree with me, but to really challenge myself and to have to deal with the counter arguments of those that either have little opinion or have very diverse opinions from me. I imagine you had to do a lot of that considering you're bringing all these different groups of people together disagree about a lot of things. <laughs> so I imagine that a lot of that was going on. Absolutely. It's even more complicated than that because there are people that will see me and my Palestinian and Jordanian co-directors as traitors. That mm. they, they see, they think that if you're working with the other side, you must be working for the other side. We very much see ourselves as, as proud nationalists for our respective countries. I'm, I'm a very proud Israeli to think that I'm working in Israel's very best interests. And I think my Palestinian and Jordanian colleagues are doing the same. We're not traitors at all. We think that we're the most loyal people. Right. To our and we need to present counter argument, defend ourselves. And in fact, at Equipeace, we try to empower everyone that gets involved in our work to defend themselves because we know as soon as they've met with the other side, there's going to be a minority, but a very vocal minority that will come out and condemn them very vocally I mean, in social media, uh, you name it. And if they can't respond, then not only do we lose them, 
but others will not stand up either. And therefore, we really work with people on the ground across the region, from school kids to teachers to mayors to farmers, to not only bring them together for good cause, but also to empower them to explain why what they're doing is so critical to the prosperity or national security or welfare of their own people, first and foremost. The fact that it's a common benefit to all three peoples, and of course is the focus of our work, that as long as they're able to espouse that it's advancing their own people, then they're able to defend themselves. And in that way, bring others on board. And that way, the movement becomes always larger and larger. Israelis, Palestinians, Jordanians, they're all receiving messages about each other. Some not so great, some okay. And I was wondering, do you teach listening in your programs? Because I imagine that's a big part of this work is to be, you talked about defending yourself, but in order to defend, you must also have to listen. Absolutely. So we have, for the last 17 years, developed a curriculums in schools, in Israeli schools, in Palestinian schools, in Jordanian schools. At the moment, we're leading a water diplomacy program in high schools. In fact, it's the first high school system in the world in Israel that's adopted water diplomacy. And we're really proud of introducing that. And critical part is first and foremost, learning how to listen, put your emotions behind, try and stand in the shoes of the other and listen to their narrative. And that goes for both sides, for all sides, to listen to the others. You know, you're not going to be poisoned. You have nothing to fear from listening. You might not agree. If you listen and listen carefully, then you'll connect to issues of the mind and you connect to issues of the heart. And they're two critical avenues of, of developing a conversation. So you can disagree with many of the issues of the mind, but it's hard to disagree with the heart. If someone feels they're suffering, then that's an opportunity to show compassion. And as soon as you've shown compassion, then the issues of the mind uh, can become uh, far more flexible and become open further discussion. So, and that's on all sides. So, so that skill is very much ingrained into education programs. What is one core value that guides your life? I think that um, the one I'd like to speak about is humility. I think it's really critical in any leadership role, in any role that is trying to change things and, and, and is being clearly critical of the status quo, and is to come in with a high sense of humility that I don't know everything. And I'm always learning and I need to continue to always learn. I mean, it's not that I don't want to change the world, I do. But by, but by walking into any discussion with the mind open to listen, because clearly you can't learn if you don't listen, but with the humility that I have a lot to continue to learn. There's always new perspectives. There's always new information that perhaps I haven't been exposed to. And I need to be open to that. And, I, and I'll only be open to that if I'm humble enough to understand that I don't know everything. And the reality that I see could be completely different from the perspective of, of where the other side or another person is standing and and you know we see that every day our news coverage could not be more different and we often share what the news has said on our side or on their side and how different the news is presented so it's no wonder that the people such divert divergent um, narratives and perspectives is because they're getting such different information. So I think coming into every issue every day uh, with a sense of humility, with a sense that I need to learn and not blame, I think is critical learning that, that I would advise anyone to take on. 
That is so important. That's so such an important core value. What is one of your favorite moments in Israeli history? Look, I'm a very proud Israeli, and, and I think that it is a bit of a miracle what Israel has achieved, um, you know, considering where it's come from. And although COVID is a disaster for people and the economy, overall, I'm just incredibly proud of where Israel is, you know, the diverse country of, of bringing in people from all, you know, sort of corners of, of the world and creating this melting pot that overall has been tremendously successful. But I also strongly believe that we can do better. And of course, creating a peace with our neighbors from both a people-to-people perspective, but also from an environment perspective, is still something that I believe is essential for our a real success. So I don't think there's one particular moment. I think it's the overall, the whole trajectory of where the country has come from and where it is today, from the ashes of the Holocaust to a giant in so many fields. And I just think that we could be so much more of a giant if we could overcome the conflict issues that we face with our neighborhood, in our neighborhood. And I'm certain that we can, and it requires compassion and listening and compromise on our side as much as it does on the other side. If a college student or a young professional were moving to Israel, what would be your advice to them? My advice to a college student or to a young professional coming to Israel is to really take a look seriously about staying here. Now come with the mindset that maybe it could be your home. I think that people need to come with a sense of great patience because the cultural, economic, physical reality is just so different from the United States. Come with a very open mind, but also come with great inquiry. Really sort of come with a little shovel and start digging and meet the tremendous variety of cultures, both Jewish, Muslim and Christian. I mean, I think that's part of the the, the brilliant diversity of, of, of Israel and Baha'i and Druze and you name it. every rock in this country has hundreds of, if not thousands of years of history and come to explore not only from an archaeological perspective, but from a, a cultural perspective, the richness of this place and come with lots of energy because I think Israel is a relatively a very young country with a young population of highly energetic and lots of you know, motivated people. Connect with them, find a tremendous reward by doing so. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for sharing your story and wisdom for Career Up Now, socially distanced close-up podcast. Forward to keeping in touch and wish, wish you the best for your future. Thank you so much.